0: In this case, we've got Jack and McKenna Tillotson here, uh, visiting from Italy. And uh, part of the reason they're in town is because uh, uh, Jack's grandfather, John Marshall, passed away last month, and so they're in um, in town for the memorial service, but we wanted to get them up front just to share a little bit about what's going on with them in Italy. So, Jack.
1: Thank you, Zach. Um, Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Jack Tillotson, and this is my wife, McKenna. Um, you know, this gets a little harder to go through every time I actually go through it, but um, we'll get through, and God is good, and, uh, you know, I better stick to this, though, otherwise. So um, we just wanted to say it's, it's so good to be back home in Oregon in our home church. We've been serving a church plant with TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, in northern Italy for just a little bit longer than a year now, with our colleagues, David and Emily. They've been in Italy for the past 10 years and have three awesome kids whom we really love. We're so thankful for your support, which allows us to minister in a country where most people, as you can imagine, have had quite a lot of exposure to Christianity, but largely have never experienced the forgiveness that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, among the younger generation in Italy, there's an increasing disassociation with the church in general that tend to have a very secular mindset like many other countries in Europe with only between one to two percent of the population being evangelical Christians. So while we do in fact host a number of um, event-driven evangelistic opportunities like our children's summer camps and Thanksgiving dinners, our ministry is primarily based on relationships with people in our kids' classes. Monday through Friday you can find us teaching English and the Bible to people from the ages of six all the way to 86. We seek to share Christ through common interests, shared experiences, and generally living life together, intentionally seeking ways to introduce them to the Scriptures and teach people how to study the Bible for themselves. This is one of the biggest uh, open doors we have found when explaining the differences between Evangelical and Catholic. Often they know us as the church that actually reads and studies the Bible. Um, Through the last few years, our colleagues have been praying for the campus in our town of Forli, which is a growing campus of about 6,000 students, which for many years has been largely unreached. While we don't have time to share how God has answered prayer after prayer, this morning we wanna share the story of Tara, a girl very close to our hearts. After many only God moments, last winter, we started an English Bible study in our church. Tara, a study abroad student from Belgium, who is normally quite cheerful and chatty, was very nervous at our first Bible study. She was visibly shaking as we explained how the Bible is organized and what it means to read and study it. Even though she attended a Catholic high school growing up and came from a church home, she literally had no idea what to expect and yet quickly became an eager learner. So eager in fact, that as the weeks went on, it became clear that God was doing a great work in Tara's heart. (laughs) Neither of us can get through. she was tasting the living waters of life and recognized that she wanted nothing less than Jesus. Sorry. always <laughs> happens. Yeah. Um, I'll keep going. Just got to be able to see. We witnessed her transformation as she surrendered her life to Him. Before she returned to Belgium in March of the past spring, she stood in front of the church and shared her heartfelt thanks for demonstrating to her for the first time what a Christ-centered community is like. Tara returned to Belgium as a new person, has continued studying the Bible through Zoom with us, and has even expressed a desire to be baptized. We rejoice in what God is doing uh, in and through us in the life of Tara, as well as other college students and kids that we've been able to minister to in the last year. Church planting in Europe is often a long and slow process, but God has certainly not forgotten his church in Europe. We rejoice in what God is doing in and through us and our team in the country of Italy and in our city. And we can't wait to see what comes next in the story he is writing as we head back to Italy for another year of ministry. Thank you for your prayers and support as we continue living our lives in a way that opens pathways to reading and studying the scriptures. And praying for the Holy Spirit to continue his work in the lives of Italians and others. We'd love to share more stories and talk in the atrium after the service. (laughs) Quindi grazie mille, ci vediamo dopo.
2: It's too bad they don't love what they're doing. Um, (laughs) um, They're here. Tuesday is a service for John Marshall, and John and Kathy have been a huge part of the history of this church. And I just look at you two and see his legacy passed on in you. And um, that's just really neat. We're going to pray. And I-, I would love it if you would stand with me and them and just raise your hands if you're able. Uh, we're going we're to send them out as part of our family again and uh, just ask God's blessing. Father God, um, as we've been studying the book of acts i I listen to their stories these stories and um, you are just as paul was doing uh, they're planting they're planting seeds of faith in in communities in europe uh, and asia but uh, for them specifically in europe Uh, we we thank you lord for the work that they're doing and we ask for your hand of blessing to be upon that Um, just as paul worried as he started these small churches and prayed for them. We pray for these churches, that these small groups that they're they're creating, that uh, you would sustain them, Lord, that you would not just sustain, but you would grow them. Uh, and we thank you for uh, the work that they are doing there. And we, we pray for, for Jack and McKenna and just ask you to give them um, uh, opportunities for silence and solitude and, and just to draw into your presence and to understand uh, what it is you have for them in the future. What's, what's next for them? Give them wisdom, give them discernment. Uh, but throughout it all, Lord, we ask for your special hand of anointing and blessing and that you would just continue to do your powerful work through them. And we thank you for the work that you're doing in them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Thank
0: you. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Labor Day weekend. Hope you're enjoying it thus far. Um, Beautiful sunshine. Glad it kind of cooled off a little bit, though. That's a good thing. And all of you that are uh, joining us online, hi. Glad that you're with us as well. My name is Rick Tillman. I'm one of the elders here at Rolling Hills, and I'm on the teaching team. And so uh, my job this morning is to continue our study in Acts. Now, Acts is a book that you could uh, take a year to study through. we have sprinted through it in about three months, and Aaron will finish it next Sunday. Three months. So obviously, there has been a lot that was left on the table. So I'm really hoping that uh, everybody will um, take up that challenge to pick up the book of Acts and read it. It is uh, an incredible, amazing story of the beginnings of Christianity as it spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the vast ends of the Roman Empire. It was written by uh, Dr. Luke. He was a physician and a historian. He also wrote one of our major gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. He wrote Luke. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a a very key segment of this growth. Most of you know, or if you're new to the faith, uh, there was a a gentleman named Saul who, at the beginning of uh, the spread of Christianity, was um, the chief nemesis of the church. He hated the Christians and, and took every opportunity he could to persecute them. Well, one day, when he was on the road to Damascus, he had a very personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, where he immediately put his faith and trust in Christ Converted to Christianity and became one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known. Spreading the message of Christ and Christianity through most of the ancient world. And establishing almost 14 different churches. He had three basic missionary journeys that he took. We've looked at events in the first two. And this morning, we're going to take a mad dash through this third missionary journey. And stop at key places and make certain... uh, applications to our life, see what God would have for us there. Um, as we read the book of Acts, though it is, it is this incredible story of amazing spiritual victories as a thousand people come to know Jesus in one day, but it's also a story of incredible opposition, of misunderstandings, of hatred and riots and prison and torture, but of kindness and love and deep fellowship as God continued to put his spirit in the early believers so that come what may, through it all, through it all, they continued to share the incredible message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's what is going to happen more in this third missionary journey. So hang on tight and uh, let's, let's take a look. So they started this journey. Up here, right around Antioch, which is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They traveled up here through uh, Galatia and Phrygia, and they ended up here at Ephesus. Now, Paul spent three years at Ephesus, three years at this incredible city. It had 300,000 inhabitants, it was located on a big harbor, so they had a lot of trade a lot of trade and they grew wealthy off this trade it was also the home of the seventh wonder of the world the temple of artemis romans called it the temple of diana and here was the goddess that people would travel from all over to come and worship at this temple important people uh, Important religious military leaders and kings and princes would all come here. Tourists from all over would come here to see the wonder of the world and to make their offerings and their sacrifices. Huge place of uh, international travel and interchange. And here is where Paul spent three years with an incredible ministry. So just to touch on a couple of things. The first thing he does when he gets there, he hooks up with Priscilla and Aquila, two of his former... Uh, converts that he did on his second missionary journey. And he um, then heads straight away to the synagogue, which was as his custom, he would go there to teach. And he taught there for three months. Three months he taught there. It says, Paul entered the synagogue, and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing and persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, when some some of us hear the word, argued, you know, we think of people yelling and screaming and fighting, but this is more along the lines of a courtroom arguing kind of thing, where Paul would lay out the claims of Christ, the Jewish, other Jewish leaders in the synagogue would push back, and he would answer those questions, and then they would push back some more, bring up some other points, and then he would answer those questions, a give and take, and I think there's something here for us to learn. Oftentimes, in our ever-increasing biblical, illiterate world, people will push back or disagree with us and we'll shrink back way too quick. It's kind of like, oh, okay, fine, fine. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to, you know, get on anybody's bad list, you know. Shrink back really quick. When, When people push back and ask those hard questions, that's a good thing. That is okay. People should ask the hard questions. And we don't always have to have all the answers. We're just responsible for telling the answers that we know. We answer the questions we know, research those we don't, and then get back to them at the appropriate time. I've learned a lot from looking into some of the hard questions some of my unbelieving friends have asked me. That's a good, that's okay, that's a good thing. Some of you will remember the story of this uh, um, adamant atheist who worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was an investigative journalist who spent, you know, his life investigating various different things, and he thought Christianity was just silly, kind of stupid, and then his wife becomes a Christian. Now what? So he takes two years looking into Christianity, deep dive, asking the hard questions. He becomes a Christian. He gets to the point. He says, I can't. You know, the, the evidence is just too vast and too big. He it gives his life to Jesus Christ, becomes an amazing pastor teacher at three of the largest churches in America, goes on to write 44 books, including his best-selling book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel is his name. Amazing, two years. It's, it is okay and it is good to have this back and forth. Okay. So, I want to encourage us to hang in there, to not give up on our neighbors, not give up on our friends, but keep, keep the dialogue. My job is to, to love them, respect them, and keep the dialogue open and going. But there's another lesson here. It was because while some of the Jewish people became believers, others, not so much. Verse 19, 9. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. Publicly malign the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him. He had discussions daily then in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So there is a time to walk away. Some of the Jews had become obstinate, digging in their heels, just flat out refusing to believe. And more importantly, they begin to publicly, keyword publicly, malign the way. That is, they would mock and make fun of the things that Paul was teaching. And when that happens, our time is better spent somewhere else. Jesus in the book of Matthew, when he sent his disciples out through all the towns and villages to to spread the news and the message of the kingdom, he told them when you come to a place, and that home, that place, that city welcomes you, go in and let your blessing be upon it. But if they refuse to hear you, shake the dust off and move on. And that's what Paul did. He took all his disciples and went to this big lecture hall where it says he taught daily there for two years. And during this two years, some amazing things happened in growth of the church. He was teaching there. Remember, this is a a real metropolitan. Politan area where people are coming and going and all the time. So they would come here, people and tourists from all over, they would actually get to hear Paul give his message and then they would take it back to the towns and villages that they lived in. So it began to spread so much so that the scripture makes this incredible statement that all those living in the providence of Asia heard the word of God. That's crazy. It's about the same time that Paul began to do some amazing miracles. God's Spirit totally filled him in such a way that he was healing all kinds of people. He was casting demons out of everybody that was was demon-possessed because of Ephesus, for all of its pomp and glory and its sophistication, was steeped in the occult and idol worship. And Paul began to do these incredible miracles through the power of Jesus. Now, evidently in that time, the first century, casting out demons, evil spirits, was a, a regular thing among a lot of Jewish priests. They would, um, they would use incantations uh, to evoke certain incantations and names that would help to exercise these demons to some success and sometimes to not very much success at all. Well, evidently, a bunch of these Jewish priests heard Paul doing all of these amazing miracles through the power of Jesus' name. So, you know, they thought they'd give it a try. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Lord Jesus in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. In the name of the Lord Je- they didn't say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. Notice, they said, who Paul preaches. They didn't preach Jesus. They didn't trust in Him for salvation. They didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Paul's power came from the person in whom he put his trust paul's power was because he because he put his trust in the living risen lord jesus christ the maker of heaven and earth the author and the creator of life that's where he got his power these guys were using jesus name like an abracadabra magic spell And they had no power at all. And the demon in the room knew it. Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? And he jumped on them and he beat them so badly they went fleeing from the house, naked and bleeding. I kind of like that story. <laughs> I probably like it a little too much. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, when this, when this demon said, Jesus I know, he used the word gnosko, which is, I know him intimately. I've experienced him. It's an experiential knowledge that somebody's actually been a part of, had contact with, knows personally. Then when he said, paul i know about he switched to the word epistemi which means intellectually i know about that i mean cognitively i've heard about that i have some knowledge of that but he had personal knowledge of the lord jesus christ remember that the evil spirits and demons are angels they're all these angels there's good angels and there's bad angels the bad angels we refer to as the demons and spirits. They're eternal beings. They were around from the beginning. They knew full well who Jesus Christ was. Every time we come to a demon in the scripture, they always know who Jesus is immediately. And they're gone. The scripture says that the demons believe and they tremble. Word of this spread throughout the entire city. It was huge. Paul began to do some miracles that, that were incredible. And remember, this wasn't a normal normal kind of standard operating procedure. He did, this didn't happen in every city that Paul went to. But remember, he's in Ephesus ministering in the shadow of the temple of Diana, where all this occult and sorcery were. And all this idol worship, and evidently God was showing that the power of Jesus through Paul was supreme over all of that. People begin to give up their sorcery, begin to burn their, their incantations. People who are followers of Christ begin to speak of Christ more boldly. I mean, it was spreading everywhere and having a huge impact. But in the mind of a guy named Demetrius it wasn't a good impact. Demetrius was this um, silversmith who made idols. And he and a bunch of his friends were feeling this impact in their pocketbook. The more people that became Christians, the less people that bought all these little idols. So one day, Demetrius and a bunch of his his friends, they, they caused a huge riot in the city. Huge riot. They grabbed some of Paul's associates. They dragged them to this open air theater, and they surely, they would have killed them if the city officials didn't show up and dispel the crowd. Miracle that Paul's associates even lived. Well, during this time, or actually just before the riot, Paul had felt God was leading him back to Jerusalem and on to Rome. And so when this riot happened, it made his decision... um, all the more timely. So he sets out across the Aegean Sea because first he wants to go to, back to Macedonia and to Acacia and visit those churches and strengthen those disciples. So he leaves Ephesus. He kind of goes up here and all around this area, comes down and lands in Corinth, down in Greece. And he stays there three months And while he was down there in Corinth, that's where he wrote the book of Romans. And while there, he decided, you know what, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to sail back to Syria where his journey started. And so he starts to make plans of that when all of a sudden he learns about a plot to kill him. Evidently, some men were going to board the ship he was on, kill Paul, and dispose of his body at sea. So Paul decided, I think I'll take the long way home. So he goes back up through Macedonia, various different places, heads back up, makes this loop, comes up through Philippi, and ends up in Troas, where he stays for three days. But wait a second, let's backtrack for just a minute. How many of you, at some time in your life, discovered that a group of people were plotting to kill you. Show of hands. (laughs) Not many of us. Four times, four times in the Scripture, Paul found out that people, groups of people, some of them very influential and powerful, were plotting to kill him. Now, that would have to wear on you. But Paul, undeterred, pressed on to the calling that God had put in his life and his heart. Come what may, Paul was determined to continue to spread the message God had given him. So, when he was in Troas really interesting thing happens. He's teaching in Troas at this big house, and he's teaching late into the night, and there was this young man, Eutychus, and he was sitting there in a window listening to Paul. And as Paul went on and on, he began to get sleepy, and, and, and he fell into this deep sleep, leaned back, fell out the window, three stories down, boom. People were horrified. They run down, they find him there. He's dead. But Paul comes down, Puts his arms around him, lifts him up, brings him back to life. And tells him, if you fall asleep again when I'm teaching, I'll throw you out the window myself. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. No, no. He did not say that. That's nowhere in the scripture, okay? That's just me. Just how I feel. So, anybody? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so he leaves Terez the next day. And he's eager to get back to Jerusalem. So he goes right down the coast. A map here, yeah. So he heads down from Troy as he's going down the coast and he passes by Ephesus in his hurry and goes down to Miletus. He passed by Ephesus, he had spent three years there. He probably had all kinds of people that knew and loved him. He was in a hurry, he didn't want to get caught up there. So he goes down to Miletus, which is about 30 miles south and there he sends for the elders of the Ephesus church. He goes there and he calls them down to meet with him. And here, uh, in this section of Acts, we get a, a really incredible look into a very personal, emotional farewell to these elders. Here we read not so much about Paul the evangelist, but Paul the pastor, the shepherd, as he communicated to these guys that he had spent three years spiritually pouring into. And there's so much good things in there. I can just, we're gonna sprint past this just just to tell you how this ended. And he says, it says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept and they embraced him and they kissed him But what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Now we get an idea of why this was so emotional. He would never see their face again. You see, in the middle of this big discourse, we get an incredible glimpse into the heart and the passion and commitment of Paul where he says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only claim, my only aim is to... Finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. These were really sobering words for these men who loved Paul so much to hear. Now, when he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me, it wasn't that Paul considered his, wasn't concerned about his life. He was, when he was in Corinth, he wrote this letter to the Romans, and in chapter 15 of Romans, he says, pray for me that I will be kept safe, and that God will protect me from the unbelievers in Judea. And that's why in Corinth, he didn't get on that boat where the plot to kill him was. He went the long way home. Certainly he cared about his life. This was a statement of priorities. This is a statement where he says, my personal peace and safety of my life is not the priority. My priority will always be the spiritual, the things God has called me to do. That's going to be the chief priority of my life. His goal, his aim and his goal was to finish the race and complete the task. Wherever God would lead him, whatever path God wanted him on, that was his race. That was the path in the course he wanted to stay on, to be doing what God had called him to do. And his task, sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Paul preached Jesus Christ, son of God in the flesh, crucified, buried, resurrected to a new life so that everybody who puts their faith and trust in him can experience salvation, forgiveness of sins. And like he was resurrected, they too would be resurrected to a new life. A life where Revelations 21 tells us there's no more pain or suffering or crying And that God himself will wipe away every tear, an internal life where all the bad things of this world, the injustices, the wrong things, the persecutions, the ugly things of this world are all gone. They're all made right again. That was the message freely given to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that is a message that takes supremacy over everything else in his life, and it should our life as well. Now you may say, you know what? I'm not the Apostle Paul. Granted. And all of us have a slightly different race, you know. Our lives have a finish line. The clock's ticking. And none of us knows when exactly that is. But we want to stay on that path, that journey of wherever God is calling us. That's the road we want to stay on. That's the place where Paul wanted to be running to finish that that course, that path. And each of us has one. I love what King David said in Psalm 139. He's talking to God and he says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has a plan for your life. He has a path for you to walk on. They may be very different than the person sitting next to you. Our job is to ask God what that is every day of our life. Keep me on the path, Lord. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to work? Who do you want me to talk to? Just always lifting that up to God. The task, however, our journeys, our paths may be a little different, but the task for all of us is the same, sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Just before Jesus left the planet and ascended to his Father, he gave what we call the Great Commission, where he says, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, really important part, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. No matter what our path, what our journey, come good times, bad times, come what may, the living Lord Jesus Christ promises to be with us. We're told to live in this world as children of the light in a dark and perverse world. And as we do, we will shine like the stars in heaven as we hang on firmly to the word of God. That, as we shine as that light, and people see that, that's when they want to know what's different about us, and that's when we get an opportunity to share what God has done in our life. So I want, to be, I want to be like Paul. I want to keep the, my spiritual things in my life a priority. I want to walk the path and the journey he's called me to, and I want to always be ready, as First Peter says, to give an answer of the hope that is within me. Okay, moving on. They make their way down, down, down the coast to Petra, and now to the city of Tyre, and some really interesting things happen in these next two cities, just briefly. They're getting close to Jerusalem now, so in the city of Tyre, they meet with all the disciples, and he says, in Acts 19, he says, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, wait a minute. Through the Holy Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what's up with that? Paul said through the Holy Spirit he was being led to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so, so more on that later. Hang on to that thought. Well, they only stay a few days there and tire, and they have another emotional um, uh, <coughs> goodbye as the men, women, and children all come out to the boat and they kneel and they pray. You can read all about it, and I love it that Paul, I mean, sorry that Luke includes these moments so that we see what kind of incredible deep fellowship and commitment and love the New Testament believers had for one another and for Paul. Well, they get on down to Caesarea now, and another crazy thing happens in Caesarea. While they're there, just below there, in Caesarea, while they're there, a prophet, Agabus, comes down from Judea, and he walks up to Paul, and he takes his belt, and he ties his hands, and then he ties his feet, and then he looks up and he says, In the same way, the Jewish leaders will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. And prophets can be a little dramatic. They like to act things out. Well, this was, again, greatly disturbing to those that were traveling with Paul. Twice now, he had been warned through the Spirit, and now through this prophet of what lay ahead of him. When, he heard, when we heard this, and notice again the we, this is Luke, the eyewitness there traveling with them, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Bad news is waiting for you, Paul. It's written on the wall. I mean, come on. But then Paul answered, and I love his response, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only willing to go and be bound, I'm willing to die if that's what it means. And when they, he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. See, it is a natural reaction for us to avoid pain and suffering, right? It's a natural reaction for for people that love us, or the people that you love, to not want to see them go through hard times. And we we'll often think, if hard times and trouble is what we're going through, then that can't be of God. That can't be a good thing, it can't be a right thing. But nothing could be further from the truth. Oftentimes, following God does have some really tough times and some struggles. The way scholars explain the ones in, the disciples in the city of Tyre who told Paul not to go is that the Spirit had indeed revealed to them that there would be really tough times for Paul. But it was out of their own love for Paul and their own emotions that they concluded that they didn't go. That part wasn't of the Spirit. And notice, Agabus didn't say, don't go. He just told him what would happen when he got there. The tough times, hardships, come what may, Paul was willing to go. We tend to avoid that like ever. You know, but Paul, but Jesus was always telling his disciples in, in John 16, He said, in this world, you will have tribulations. Life is hard. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. The hard thing to see is when Christians and people who profess to be Christians, they they get into some hard times where their own personal peace and convenience are threatened and they're uncomfortable or they get to a place where they have a tragedy that hits their life, or the the ethics and values of Christianity begin to encroach on their personal life and their pocketbook, and they fold like a house of cards. Their faith is paper thin. It's a sad thing. It ought not to be. And if I'm stepping on your toes this morning, just know I'm stepping on mine too. Because I've been there and I've done that. But with God's help and in His Spirit within me, there's been many more times when I have not folded. And I pray that as my life continues in the future, by God's power and me, He will sustain me that I won't, that I will continue the race God's put me on, doing what He wants me to do and holding on to the truth of His Word. So, Paul, unswayed by the disciples, uh, he heads off to Jerusalem. Now, when they get to Jerusalem, everything's great, right? First, everything's wonderful. Paul goes in there. He goes to the leaders of the church. James was head of the church in Jerusalem at the time, and all the other elders were there. And he tells everything that God has done, all the miraculous stories about what happened in Ephesus, the spiritual victories and battles, the spread of the word. And they all, the scripture says, rejoiced, rejoiced in that. But then comes the bad news. James tells Paul, he says, you know, here in Jerusalem, there are thousands of Jewish, believing Jewish believers. Um, and there's been a, a rumor circling about you and what you've taught. And the rumor and the gossip is that you've been telling other Jewish believers to uh, forget about Moses and his teachings and the law. And you, you've to- taught them to not obey our Jewish customs, which was not true. Paul did not avoid and teach people to abandon Jewish customs. He just taught them that those customs and those rituals were not good and sufficient for salvation. Salvation was only in Jesus Christ. Paul himself obeyed some of the customs, purification sometimes, and uh, taking certain vows. He took part of those himself. So this gossip and this rumor was spreading around all about him, and it wasn't going away. So one day some Jews saw Paul in the temple and they had seen him a couple days before with some Gentiles. And so they just assumed that he had brought these Gentiles into the temple court where the only Jews can be, which is an out and out lie. He didn't do that. As a devout Jew, he would never do that. But they saw him, they ran up and they grabbed him and they started screaming yell this is the guy this is the man who teaches to obey to walk away from moses and his law and all of our customs and another huge riot begins to happen they're trying to kill him the city officials again they show up they grab paul and they arrest him you know as we live our christian lives and as we explain christ to people and live out our faith we will be misunderstood People will misrepresent us and sometimes out and out lie about us. That's just part of it. I'm sure Paul had to remind himself a lot of Jesus' words when he said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They did it to the prophets and they did it to Jesus and did it to Jesus' disciples, they will do it to us. We should never be shocked. So now Paul arrested in chains just like the prophet Agabus said he would be. What a tragic ending to the third missionary journey. Not really. Because Paul was now a prisoner of Rome, he had the opportunity now to go stand before people he would never ever meet before. As a citizen of Rome, Paul in chains chains, was sent to the Roman governor, Felix, procurator over all the land, the next Roman governor, Festus. He stood even before King Agrippa, who governed all of the territories east of Palestine. Again and again, Paul would witness to people he would have never met had he not been a prisoner. God has plans. God has plans and purposes that we have no idea of. It's our job when we hit those times to trust that he has those plans and those purposes and know that he is going to be with us through it all. What an amazing journey Paul had and the people that were so afraid of what he was going through had no idea of the greater plan and the greater purpose that God has. And often we don't either. That's what we have to trust. Trust that he has that for our lives and trust that he will be with us during all of it, come what may. Our job, to follow him and trust him, stay on the path. Many years later, Paul would write to a young pastor named Timothy, who is now pastoring the church in Ephesus. And he would say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a wonderful thing to be able to say as our life's journey comes to a close. To that end, I'd like to pray for us this morning as we close. And perhaps maybe you're here watching online where you've heard a lot about Jesus and before you've never really personally put your faith or trust in him to have that eternal life that we were talking about. And it's just always appropriate to take a minute and give you a chance to do that if that's what you want to do. It's as simple as just expressing to him your personal faith. So you can just pray along with me if you want to do that, and then I'll pray for all of us uh, as we close this morning. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the incredible stories that you recorded for us, the, your power, the way you worked in Paul's life, and the early Christians' lives, the things that you did. And Father, now I lift up anyone who has never met you and invited you into their life and surrendered their life to you. I lift those people up. And whomever you may be, if you just want to pray with me right now, you can say something like this. Jesus, I recognize you as the Son of God. I want to give you my life. I want to trust you that by your death and resurrection, you've forgiven me all of my sins. Take my life. I surrender it to you. Show me the path you want me to walk on. Show me how you want to think, love, and live. I give my life to you right now. And Father, for all of us that do know you and walk with you, Lord, keep us. Father God, like Paul, keep us on the path. Keep us and help us with our spiritual priorities, Lord, that they would stay number one in our life. And our goal would be to walk with you on whatever course and path in life you choose us to walk on and that we would always, always be ready to speak about you and share the message of your great salvation, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. Come what may. Remind us that you are with us every day. Amen.